Yeah, let's try not to have the. So, what's the water? Whilst we're at it, yeah, there must be a word for that. You know, like there's a word for that smell. It's the smell after rain. Oh yeah, is there a word for that? What? Petricor is the word for that smell when petri c o r. How do you spell? Petri p t r i c h o r petricor. And it's this smell of rain landing on hot, dry earth. Wow. So that's all right. That's one word, but there should be a word for the duck, 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 duck yeah, mobile yeah. phones. <laughs> I'd like to say fifty-six K, as in sort of nod to the modem, but it's not quite the same. You had a posh modem. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the nine six hundred. What? Yeah, it's because you're young. This way, <laughs> young. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, actually, I'll, I'll just start us off. Okie dokie. Hello and welcome back to the Retail Craft podcast studio. We have a bit of a luxury feel about proceedings today. So uh, before we kick off our intros, around the table we have me, Ian Jindal. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Internet Retailing. Jamie Merrick from Salesforce. Martin Shaw, Head of Research at RetailX. And Emma Herod, Editor of Internet Retailing. Great. Well, welcome one and all. So... Without further ado, we've been wandering the streets of London chatting to retailers, but with uh, with a bit of a luxury feel. And that coincides with Martin releasing the uh, RetailX, uh, our first sector report on the luxury sector. So before we get to our report, I thought it'd just be fun to share uh, the interview we did yesterday with David at Harrods when we visited them, uh, not in the store, but in their Hammersmith offices. Yes, my name's David. I'm the Customer Insights Director at Harrods. My job is to understand all things about our customers and to help us as a company to understand them. So um, that's an incredible role, given the breadth of your customers and the fact that, uh, you know, you're a store with global reach. So just tell us, give us a thumbnail of your customer. Is there an average uh, Harrods customer or are there some key clusters? Well, I think that's what makes it really tricky. There's definitely no such thing as a Harrods customer, as an average Harrods customer. We have some of the highest net worth individuals in the world shopping with us regularly. We're also the one of the top three tourist attractions in the UK. So we have, uh, we're a tourist destination as well. And across that, the average, there is an average, it just doesn't really help you to understand what's going on. I think of it as though there's three different types of customer, really. There's the mass customer that comes through the doors every day, and our job is to deliver them amazing experiences and products. There's the super high-end customer who are coming in very, very frequently, have a very deep relationship with us. And then there's a kind of mid-tier customer who are also incredibly important to us and drive most of our trade and most of our sales um, visit the store incredibly frequently, but are not defined by these incredibly large one-off purchases like the top-end customers are. Mm. So how do you describe the store if you had to? You've got 170 years, everyone knows the name, but if you haven't been in recently, you know what is waiting for us at the store that has its own postcode? Well, it's like a palace, really. It's a, it looks like a palace from the outside. It's a beautiful uh, terracotta building. And then inside, it's got more marble than I think most palaces do. I mean, it's, it's just stunning. And I think it's, the, it's defined by three things, really. So the building itself is stunning, and increasingly so. We're putting lots of money in over the last 
couple of years and the next couple of years to, to make it even more elevated, even more beautiful. Second, it's the service. It's the thing people talk about all the time. It's the quality um, of the people in there, the quality of the relationships that they build with customers. And it's the quality of the recommendations and the stories that are told around the products that you buy. And then I think third, of course, is the product itself. Um, we have teams around the world working incredibly hard um, with craftsmen, with manufacturers, um, with luxury houses to, to get the best product that there can be in, into the building, many of which are uh, exclusive, um, but all of which are defined by being something very, very special, um, mm -hmm. especially when combined with that storytelling about where it came from and who made it and why it came to be. You know, combine all those things together, it's a really special experience. So the two things that come immediately from that, one is, you know, how does the web live up to that? And the second aspect is, uh, how can you get enough product? So no pressure on you then when you're developing a website to live up to that iconic building experience. How do you go about making the digital uh, an equal partner with the store? Is that possible? I think equal partner might be a tough challenge because, like I say, I think the store is just such a special place. But I think how can the website, how can digital uh, in general, uh, going beyond the website, how can digital enhance the relationship with the physical store is for me one of the big unanswered questions, but one that we're working really, really hard on. And we've got some really exciting plans for as well. So what that means, I think, is how do you use digital to help people to understand what Harrods is? And right now, a small fraction of our products are available online, so it doesn't give uh, a great perception of what the store is. How do you better help people to understand what they find when they come to the store? Second, the store itself is a million square foot, which is an unimaginable amount of, uh, of floor space. And so how do you help people once they get to the store or when they're thinking about visiting the store to know which of those million square foot they should spend their time in and how they should physically navigate the space? And then third, you know, people will want to purchase online after that journey or during that journey or for other customer journeys, or they will want to book appointments in store and all sorts of other uh, kind of payment or transaction or booking uh, type things. So how do you make that as smooth and as seamless as possible uh, and also to do it in a Harrods uh, kind of quality? But it's about much, clearly about much more than just how do you sell stuff online. So what would um, Harris quality be? Do you have an example of something that you think you've done that you've just nailed it as that's the way we do it rather than everyone else would do it? Let me give you a store example and let's talk about what that might mean in digital. In the store, one of the places I love taking people when I'm trying to explain what Harrods is, is Wines and Spirits, so down on the lower ground floor. It is a beautiful space, but you'd expect that. Baked into the space are these amazing experiences that you can touch and smell, in this case, uh, and feel. So there's these glass domes underneath which are kind of physical things, like peat, to give you a sense of what one of the flavors are in whiskey. Uh, and there's probably 30 or 40 of these glass domes. You squeeze something and out comes this smell, which is crafted based on the exact type of peat that we wanted to represent that was shipped to a chemist who then made the exact type of perfume that, that captured that smell brilliantly. And as a person off the street, you can walk in and, and immediately just sample and experience the, the essence of the product on the rack. So that's storytelling about products uh, in a very physical, um, very real-world sense. Now, for the rest of the store, I think that exists, but it exists when you talk to people, when you talk to the amazing service staff, 
what would that look like online? Well, there's no smell download modules and websites, so that can't happen. But, but how would you capture storytelling around amazing uh, products, amazing wines and spirits or whiskies? How would you help to understand like who made that and how and why it's so special? So I think that's obviously video and words and pictures and some combination, which is a significant investment in editorial. Um, so that's strange. You've got a, st a shop investing heavily in editorial talent, but that's how you tell stories in the digital world. In the real world, it's sales staff and increasingly physical displays like Wines and Spirits. But in the digital world, it's pictures and video and words. And uh, I think our new website we're working hard on will, con will contain lots of storytelling and lots of content alongside product and how you mix the two together and weave from one to the other, I think will be, uh, will define its success. I think the fascinating thing you said at the beginning uh, about it's the third you know, most visited place in the, the UK or something along those lines. A lot of people, anyway, coming to have a look at it. And, and based on what you just said there, while you're trying to create an experience, there's a lot of different people from different parts of the world. Do you just take a Harrods point of view on things and then tell that story? Or do you try and kind of uncover things from the different parts of the world that make sense within the framework of Harrods? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think probably both. Um, I think which products we do and don't stock is, is a Harrods point of view on the world. And I think we work really hard to, again, with manufacturers or with vineyards in the case of, of wine, to make sure that we get the right product for our customers. But then I think also, what stories do you tell about those products requires a house point of view? What do we think is the story from the most recent set of fashion shows? What is our perspective on uh, and what's exciting from those, and what we will be reflecting in our range. And people look to us in store staff and in social media and in our magazine that we send to, to members. They, they look to us to have a view on that. And I think if you look at the marketplace these days, the retailers with a strong point of view are doing very well, and retailers where maybe there isn't a strong point of view are really struggling. Strong point of view can, I think, be around um, discounting and price-based offering, which is not obviously not our point of view, but I think having a point of view is increasingly important in the world. Mm. But some of the points of view that you own aren't open to all of us. I mean, those relationships with manufacturers, um, custom, one-off, uh, very short-run items. So, you know, when you look around the store, there are things there that you just can't get anywhere else. So how do you bring digital into that because uh, again I was looking through your website and there are whole departments there that are treasure troves that you wouldn't know so you know there's no even bait online so how do you bring that uniqueness to life for people who aren't in the store or even as bait to get them to visit the store? Yeah I mean I think that's a real challenge I think um, I like to spend time with our customers and when you spend time with even our, some of our biggest customers um, it's still possible to take them to another corner of the store they've not visited or not visited recently because it's been refurbished and to surprise them and to have them say, oh my God, I had no idea that you did that or you did that in that way or that or you had that type of you know, product or service. Um, good example for me are Wines and Spirits. There's a cigar room in the basement, which is a real treasure. Uh, Custom-made perfumes on the sixth floor. Um, but on every floor, there's something that people just didn't know was there. And I think if you walk in off the street and it's your first visit, then it's an even harder challenge. So in-store experiences are really good for this. If you walk anywhere near the food halls, you'll smell the bread baking. That's very deliberate to draw you in and to show you that 
we're baking the bread right there. You'll smell the coffee being roasted the other side of the room, and we've got a huge and um, beautiful coffee roaster there where you can see the beans being churned. Um, in the rest of the store, you can see things I don't know, being sewn or wine tastings happening. Or you know, so It's designed to draw people into the different experiences, but it's a real challenge. Mm. And you've mentioned a couple of things. You know, we've talked about the store experience. We've talked about having that point of view. When we're looking at the multi-category or department store sector, those that are unique and generally higher-end seem to be doing well, and those that are you know, more of a type uh, are having a, a tough time. Other than that simple observation, what, what do you think the reason for that is? Is this a move to luxury? Is digital taking away the soft middle? Um, why do you think that you and some of your you know, peers are doing so well, even though you've only got the one store, you're sort of outdoing those who have more? Well, I can talk about Harrods and why I think that might be true for Harrods. And I think it comes back to the magic of an experience and, you know, what might be an example. These cufflinks that I'm wearing right now, and they have a green man on it, the kind of symbol of Harrods. And I walked walk past them in the store, I thought, oh, that was cute. And the sales assistant came up to me and he said, to tell me about the history of the, the particular house that made these cufflinks and their, uh, the levels of craftsmanship that they go into, some of the methods that they use to make these cufflinks. I had no idea, right? And suddenly I'm spending an unreasonable amount of money on, on a very beautiful item which I treasure now. I could have bought that item online, but I never would have done. I never would have uncovered the story behind it or appreciated the craftsmanship behind it. But in that place at that time, with somebody who cares so deeply about his craft, like helping to share that magic with me. These now are not just fun because they've got a little Harrods character on them, but they're, they make me feel really special when I, when I wear them and look at them and hear them jingling. You know, so people come to Harrods not just for the product, but for the experience and the story that's wrapped around that product, which makes that product much more valuable and much more meaningful to them than it would have been if they uh, just discovered it online or purchased it in a kind of cold transaction. So if the question is why are people continuing to come to Harrods in a difficult retail environment, I think it's because it's, it's much more special. Um, it's much more than just buying products. Mm. So great in terms of story, experience, craft, uh, the specialness. But because of your global reach, you have to get those stories over to many different languages, different cultures, different experiences. So how do you manage your, your global customer base in terms of communications in particular? Well, I would say we're honestly only starting on this journey right now. I think what we've done an exceptional job of is to get the core experience right, the physical store, as I say, the sales staff, the product, great, great, great. I think off the back of that, people have found us, they hear about us, they talk about us, and they come to visit us. But we've not done an amazing job in terms of like localized language versions of websites and marketing and that kind of thing. And I think there's that's all opportunity for us, all of which we're now working on, of course. But essentially, we've got the core product right, and it's worked. And that's an even more remarkable story, I think. So just imagine how great it will be with all the local marketing. <laughs> I think look at um, China, for example. We have a Chinese store guide, but it's physically printed in Mandarin and it's dropped at a small number of locations in store. So if you're a Chinese customer wanting to navigate the store, you have to go find one of the small number of places where there is a physical store guide in Mandarin, 
uh, you know, and get it. We haven't even made that digital yet. We're working on it, of course. But like, there's amazing opportunities to be much more targeted to customers who are not from England or, or, or who don't speak English. We've done a really good job where you are already a Harrods customer. Um, and so we send beautiful printed magazines to customers, including Asia and the Middle East. And there, you know, there's a whole editorial staff behind those magazines. They're, they're really beautiful and thoughtful pieces describing the trends and you know, our point of view. Um, but if you're not a Harrods customer, there's tons of opportunity for how we could better tell you about the store and better help you to navigate it. So you, we, we had the fortune to spend a day uh, over in China together at, a, at Tencent, you know, the owners of WeChat, as, just as an example, and we saw lots of stuff that they were doing. You know, thinking about that kind of communication channel, have you really got into that yet? Or you're still sort of building up to the point where you start communicating in someone else's country to them in that way? Yeah, I think we're in the early days of that still. Um, and again, back to that conversation well, with those and other companies in China, what we've done a really good job of is making the store experience better for customers who use those payment methods, for example. So you can pay with uh, Alipay or WeChat Pay in store now. But again, everything we've done is about making that core store experience the best it can be. And you know what? People come. It's amazing if you build it. People do come. But <laughs> well, if you um, build the right thing, people will come. Yes. <laughs> but I think maybe the point is get that right first, make it magic, and then amplify it with marketing. And I think if we'd maybe done the marketing before we had Alipay Ali and, and WeChat Pay, and before we got the store guide right, and before we got the store refurbishment done, if we'd done the marketing before that, maybe it wouldn't have had the same impact. So we're hoping that will multiply the impact, but just get the store experience right. Such an important thing that I think people tend to miss. I've done lots of research with Chinese customers in, in market when we were in China, uh, here with customers who, who haven't yet visited Harrods, but incredibly affluent Chinese uh, people, for example. And one of the big lessons is we should communicate better, of course, and in, in, in different languages. But it all comes back, the biggest lesson for me, it all comes back to just get the store experience right. Make it easy to navigate, make it beautiful, serve people to high quality, have the right products, great products. An amazing amount of it comes back to get the store experience right. It sounds so easy when you say it. Um, but look, we're early enough in the year to be able to say, look forward to 2019. So if you're going to pick out one thing that's exciting you that you're working on this year, uh, what would that be? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? I think something I'm working on, much richer explanation for why our sales are what they are. On any given week, we look at headline numbers. How many sales did we get? We look at headline numbers for the number of customers that shopped. I think using descriptive and predictive analytics, we can do a much better job for people who run each individual division in store, people who look after each brand, and for the management team overall of saying, here's why sales were what they were. Here's the type of customer that's visiting more or visiting less, the type of customer that didn't shop this week or that came in droves, and the type of behaviors that are changing, that are driving that. I think traditionally in businesses, you just look at headline numbers. And to be able to genuinely say, here's why their numbers are the way they were in a kind of automated way that's available across the business, I think could be really transformative to management's understanding of the business. So I think if we can get that right, that would be game changing. Fantastic. So we've covered everything from experience to unique product, storytelling, and the numbers to back it up. David, thanks so much. Thank you. So that was a, a very enlightening session, Jamie. What, what were your takeaways from that? Because we covered a lot of ground. 
So an absolutely fascinating business. You think you know it because you may have been there a few times, but actually in a place like that that's been going for 170 years, I think he said, mm. it's obviously had a few changes over the time. You know, I once worked there. Bed linen and golf were the beneficiary department. At the same time? One after the other. I, I think that's quite interesting progression. sport, that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but um, what, what I, I got from David was that there's an absolute focus on the store. Now, that sounds obvious because they've got one store, but really... You know, in the world where we're talking about experience economy, they're kind of doing experience upon experience upon experience. Mm. And they, you know, ultimately just trying to work on that because they realize and they know because they know their business that that's what's going to do the business for them in, in, in the long term. It's become the third most visited place in, in London. And so they get a lot of casual visitors, a lot of people there to shop. You know, they've got to get that right. If they don't get that right, then the, the battle's lost. Mm. But I was uh, also... So surprised really at the level of product, love, quality, delight. I mean, often you think it's just a big place where people go and spend lots of money, and it's easy to dismiss that. But you know, the way he was talking with such passion about each individual department, product type, and brand was also surprising. You know, there are three hundred departments in the store. It has a vast footprint. Did you say it was a, a million square feet? Yep. Did I make yep. that up? No, I mean, it's right. a vast shopping area. It's got its own postcode. And to have that attention to detail and quality and service across all of those departments, it really is you know, quite quite chasing to think about you know, getting your head around all of those. Well, yeah, absolutely. And he's, he was talking about sort of like a, they've got a media... Um, your teams are wrong. That implies something to do with uh, PR. I don't mean that. I mean around content and building content. the story yeah. and telling all these micro stories from each of those 300 departments. Mm. He tells a lovely story about um, some cufflinks and that's, you know, even a, a pair of simple cufflinks has a story. Yeah. But how do you tell that? And then what sort of blew my mind was because of that, that stat we said about how many people go and visit the store as a sort of tourist attraction as well as a shop. They're all from all over the world. And you're telling this story to all different people with so many different backgrounds. It's complex and yeah. all those things, but it's fascinating. And and he really, he really did a good job in terms of getting over the you know the passion mm. they've got for retail. Which is... And uh, it was also interesting about staff. So I mean, Emma, you know, in the last episode, uh, we were talking to Annabelle and Roz from May.com and from Crabtree and Evelyn, and they were talking about you know their stores and the importance of staff. David yesterday, the way he was mentioning the, it's, it's not even just concierge, it's personal service to people. Um, is this a trend that you're seeing, that people are investing more and more in store staff to give that service to customers? Oh, definitely. That's why one of the things with digitising a lot of the back office systems, and a lot of them allowing retailers to bring more staff front of house to interact with customers. And then we have the digital systems, the iPads in store, etc., where they can then find out more about the customer and go and serve them in a more personalised way. Mm. The, the experience in store is becoming everything now, isn't it? And also the importance that places on store staff. So if we track back a couple of years when AI was taking off and we were saying that robots are going to take our jobs because what's the point of store staff? We really have totally changed the narrative in terms of investment in store staff and appreciation of their contribution. I mean, at NRF in January, there were robots a go-go. Everywhere was a robot, everywhere was a, you know, a checkout, this point of saleless store. And a couple of years ago, the reason for that would be, oh, save costs, chop costs out. Now, it's all about 
we can't get enough good staff and we want to free up the staff we've got to do the human interaction and the joy of the of the products and service and the robots will pick up the heavy lifting so you know that narrative really has gone 180 degrees in the last couple of years you know all, not all retailers are the same not all stores are the same and so therefore you have a different requirement and one one may you know a, a person who works there may be more of a functional job rather than the service but whatever we saw some great stores in 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 New York. You know, name checked Nordstrom Men's. I mean, the, the mm. quality of the staff there was they were just exceptional. They were not only knowledgeable, but they wanted to speak to you and they wanted to show off about the store and how it, it all works together and show you some of the technology that blends in and all that sort of yeah. stuff. So, you know, in the end, it was a it was a fancy shop saying fancy clothes, but it was it felt a lot more than that. And but also the the change around the, the sort of the tyranny of the sales per square foot and mm. you know. Uh, pilot high cram it in the thing about Nordstrom that I found surprising was the sheer amount of space it was a relaxed space where the product could breathe you could move around you didn't feel like you were hemmed in and you needed a pitchfork to fight your way through the uh, the product on sale so you know we are seeing I think the technology being there to support the staff the staff being you know high caliber and also the the build and layout quality uh, of the store is increasingly being part of that narrative, whether it's seen as marketing or sales support or brand support. The reality is that that store experience really is changing uh, in front of our eyes. Yeah, and depending on who, what sort of business you are, I mean, the blending of the channels, you know, the returns and the fulfillment and all that sort of stuff is becoming a lot more thoughtful and mm. a lot more interesting. You know, I, I appreciate Nordstrom, it's a bit of a higher ticket place, so perhaps they put a more, bit more focus on it than there than other places. But you see some businesses at the under end of the scale who are doing amazing stuff as well, and their results are showing as a result of it. So it's obviously, as I think you just said, Emma, you know, it's all, it's all part of the store. The store's where it's at now. And we had you know, Annabelle from Maid who talked about how you know, the the purchase may begin and end in, um, in you know, digital, online, but actually yeah. without the store, it, 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 there's a big hole. Yeah. So. Yeah. But it's the sort of thing that people would expect in the past from niche retailers. You go into like a hi-fi store or somewhere like that, the people in the shop know the product. They are really enthusiastic about it. And that's something that other retailers are having to learn, regardless of what they're selling, and bring that experience everybody yes. and i think the uh, the other thing that's really uh, growing in my mind is you know what i'm calling this this coalition of credibility so the change from a top down approach to department stores menswear womenswear homeware childrenswear beauty your racket on a couple of floors couple of premium brands job done we're seeing more of a grown-up approach uh, so bottom-up approach that starts off with credible brands clustering together in a way that makes sense to those brands. So we've seen that um, in the States where, for example, Patagonia really sponsored and nurtured the launch of some upcycling brands or, you know, a company like Bellroy that does innovative carry solutions and wallets. They're sort of incubated in the store because they say, well, if you like us, you'll also like the people we like. And so it's it's somewhere between social media, community, credibility that's emergent and grows from the brands rather than being imposed by a, a shopkeeping format. So I think that's going to have quite an impact, both in terms of marketing uh, and you know your commercial conversation with customers over years to come. 
It's interesting why the commercials will work on that and don't know how they do work, but I, I, I guess the thinking is that coming together lifts all the boats and all that sort of thing together. Um, mm -hmm. Whether it will turn out to be that way or, or whether this is just a fad, I don't think it's a fad. I think it's probably... Well, I think, you know, if you're uh, in a you know, a regional high street and you walk into a department store, a multi-category store, the, there must be a question going through your mind about why are these things together? What are the new adjacencies? Whereas we have social media that shows you what your customer wants to put together. We have that feedback that Annabelle was talking about in terms of crowdsourcing, getting the customer to invest in things they want you to build for them, as well as design and authenticity. When you put those together, I think what emerges is a different approach to retail than one that was dictated by uh, property or buying decisions from the last century. Well, isn't it all part of retailers getting to know their customers better so that they can then be part of their life and so know that they will also like X and Y and whatever else and then working with mm -hmm. other companies that Absolutely. are in that area, like yeah. the yoga Yes, the, the famous goat yoga. For our listener who's just joined this uh, podcast, then do Google goat yoga. Uh, I'm reliably informed it is safe for work. So uh, <laughs> now from goats, let's move on to look at the luxury sector overall. So in our last store tour, uh, a lot of the standout spaces were invested an investment by luxury brands, monobrands, and so on. So we've been looking at uh, changes in the luxury sector, and Martin has been beavering away and has released the first RetailX sector report on luxury. So, Martin, why? Why Why pick luxury and why an analyst report? Well, in the uh, RetailX an analyst uh, report on luxury tracks the financials and the retail capabilities and functions of the leading luxury companies globally. Uh, it's more than just looking at case studies. We actually look at the market stats, the drivers, and uh, trends over the last 10 years. And we've seen that that market has uh, increased substantially. So we're looking at 5% a year compound growth. Uh, you know, it's gone, I think, between 2008 to last year, up to about $262 billion. So we're looking at a very sizable market there. What, what is the shape of the market in terms of, you know, share for the big luxury houses versus maybe some of the startups we've seen? The largest companies in the space are companies like LVMH, and they're enormous. And they still are, and they were 10 years ago when we first started our measurements. But the way the shape has changed has largely been online, where those larger conglomerates were much slower to move online, or at least much slower to succeed in, in gaining a customer base online. And But over the 10-year period, what we've seen is they've come to almost replicate their market share overall online. And that's happened in an environment where those early starters online, such as Net-A-Porte, have also grown. So a bigger pie and bigger slices for all, but we're seeing then that the uh, the big groups are kind of now multi-channel. So their offline success is available online, but those early adopters uh, are also doing well. 
So that that's good news. What, what what else struck you about the report? I mean, obviously people can read it, but from your perspective, what were the uh, the interesting points that came out of it? Well, from the discussion of market drivers, one of the major things which came out was how the Chinese customer has really revolutionized luxury and the luxury market globally is almost twice the size it was 10 years ago. And that growth is largely driven by China. So we did this study where we evaluated China's GDP versus the luxury market in terms of turnover. And we looked at annual growth rates over the 10-year period. And you know, they go up and down a bit, but the two lines actually hug each other hmm. in a remarkable way, whereas the same isn't true of Europe and North America when you plot their GDP. So we think it, it's significant that the growing Chinese middle class is um, very interested, especially in international luxury brands. And uh, it's, but, but since you say the middle class, so these middle class customers buying luxury goods, or is it the very affluent Chinese customer buying the luxury goods? Because you know one of the things that came out was that there is a growing wealth disparity within China. So it's not a homogenous market of just everybody getting more affluent together. Some are getting more affluent more quickly as well. So you know, that, that was an interesting uh, insight from, uh, from the research. Yes, it was. So 20 years ago, the Chinese market was much less unequal in terms of wealth distribution. Over that time, the poorest have got richer, but not nearly as much richer as, as those <laughs> wealth, that wealthier group. Though over the past 10 years, the, that inequality hasn't uh, worsened, if that's the correct term. Um, but we do still see that the distribution has remained the same. And in fact, one in three luxury purchases globally is going to a Chinese consumer, though the figure for sales that are actually taking place in China is about 20%. So it's not just, yes, this very wealthy elite, it's also a traveling Traveling wealthy, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which I think David talks about quite a lot. It was important to his business, you know. Yes, critical what goes on there, um, and, and how it then affects you know his business over in in London. So, yes, but one of the other things that was interesting was that the this isn't just a once a year wave. He was talking about an incredible level of regularity and frequency of purchase as well. So it's as if the luxury customer is not just you, know, you save up all year, then you buy one thing. These are frequent, repeat, regular purchases by a cohort of people uh, who obviously have the money to do it, but also demand uh, a level of service. And it was interesting as well, what David was saying about the Howard service, which is that um, excellent service in another store is just mediocre as far as they're concerned. And so he says that their customer is so demanding of beyond excellence in terms of service that it really does make them be, you know, on sort of 101% uh, all the time. It's not surprising when he shares some of the numbers of uh, some of his customers. It's, you know, quite extraordinary, you know, how so much, much some people spend. It One thing I noticed when I was in China about some brands, even the ones that, let's say, are upper, upper middle rather than necessarily luxury, they have all had to and I say this with a sort of slightly quizzical sort of way, is that they've had to up their prices because otherwise people won't buy it because mm. it's not expensive enough. Not expensive enough, exactly. You know, 30% more in some cases on some fashion brands. You yeah. think, wow, how does that work? But again, I think this uh, is, goes counter 
to the conversation around authenticity. Because when David is talking about the craft, the care that goes into the products, the implication is it is that craft and the materials that makes them expensive rather than a an expensive price making them desirable. So I think there is this this tension that your know, price alone is not luxury. And you know, this is something uh, we also found with um, something that, that surprised me slightly, which is the growth in re-commerce. Mm. So not just retail, but you know, the second bite of the cherries. I mean, this is something that you covered off as well, Martin. Yeah, so it seems that brands have identified re-commerce as an important source of revenue growth and also a way to introduce new customers who may become brand loyal at a lower price point. And so we say re-commerce, we need a little audio footnote here to explain uh, what, what do we mean by re-commerce, this jargon we're just throwing in. So if you buy a particular luxury product, you may down the line replace it with a new one and then you want to sell it again. So we're using re-commerce as an umbrella term for all the different ways that you can have a transaction at the end of your ownership of that good and then it goes on to somebody else. Mm. And so there are two sizes. One, of course, is recovering value from a product that maybe hasn't been worn out, but also the the growing accessibility of what we would have called secondhand some years ago. So, you know, Watchfinder was recently acquired by Richemont as you know, a fantastic example of the second hand in uh, vintage watches or nearly new watches. Uh, so that's a, a growing market. Yeah, so I, I think the internet has definitely enabled a lot of this. We've seen Watchfinder. But I think as this goes forward, this is something we've, we've noticed is a growing area. And at the moment, it, it accounts for less than 2% of luxury sales worldwide. Mm. But luxury cars, for example, mm -hmm. their sales are twice as big as personal goods. And if we expect this sector, the personal luxury goods, to model after cars, then we would expect that to grow. Right, interesting. Well, we've seen, we may have mentioned this on a previous edition, but for those who didn't hear it, renting of yes. clothing and high-end clothing, you know, the, the eponymous rent the runway in, in New York, and there's plenty of ones over here as well, doing something similar. Mm. I can't help feeling that that has got uh, some real it's got future. Some it's got some legs. And it's a great sense. I mean, we we uh, accosted people in the store we <laughs> at, did. at great personal risk. And, <laughs> uh, you know, the two stories that came out from people said, look, excuse us, why are you buying it? One was, it's cheaper to rent than to buy. I just don't have the cash to buy these great clothes. Mm. And then the other thing that came out was, you know, I've got a job where I need to be you know, going out every evening, I physically can't have a wardrobe big enough to cover off, you know, 30 or 40 outfits a month. So I rent them and, you know, it cycles with that way. So I think uh, the experience, the usage, the utility of clothing is no longer linked to ownership and having it in your closet. Yeah, and there's a lot of talk, you know, there's, there's some consumer trends going on there about, you know, wastage and all that sort of stuff. But ultimately, people want to look different. We, we've talked in previous editions also about uh, the younger audience and how they want freshness. That's certainly some research we did last year that told us that keeping things fresh was very important. 
how do you keep it fresh? You've got to put a lot of uh, you know personal budget behind that. Some people are saying, well, let's show you how to style clothes in a different way. So you've got the same thing, but it's styled in a different way. And therefore, when you send that picture on Insta, you're actually looking different, even yeah. though actually it's the same thing. Well, that's one way of doing it, but that requires a lot of education, whereas just going and renting something new seems to me like a sensible thing. And I, and I would do it if it was available to me. Yeah, but especially if they've been brought up with fast fashion, where you don't have to wear anything more than once, but it's a cheaper price. Then you get older and or you have more money, you can um, mm. you can rent luxury items and designer the, products. Yeah, the, the quality of the luxury product uh, means that you don't want to discard it because it has got mm. the craftsmanship, the material, uh, it has got a value to you. And it was interesting as well, you know, when we were talking about furniture and you know, reducing the environmental impact of that by sourcing and you know, being made to demand rather than uh, filling a, a warehouse with it. As we see some of the uh, people who've got pride in their product and want to see them used, I was thinking about the CEO of Patagonia, who was saying that they've moved beyond recycling and now it's about renewals. It's not just about, you know, reduce your consumption, um, reuse, recycle. They're saying that you now have to find a way to renew the environment, not just damage it less. So they look at things like carbon sequestration, um, recovering pesticide-damaged lands to bring them into fertility again. And it was interesting that they now see that as part of their brand responsibility and commitment, as well as producing fantastic high-end uh, outdoor clothing. So you know, this really this idea that re-commerce reverse commerce, that whole cycle, brands are no longer just talking about the moment of the purchase. It's before, during, after the purchase, the repeat purchase, et cetera, et cetera. So I think a very interesting change there in the market. Well, there's a lot more transparency, isn't there? Now, I think that's becoming the norm for people, not the norm maybe, but certainly for a lot of brands. Let's be transparent about whatever we're doing, mm. good or bad. I, I, this is a slightly different point, but it's a, on a similar theme. I went on to Everlane to have a look, and this is a brand that does a lot of recycling of products and tries but to... But also, make... they have that radical transparency where they tell yeah. you the profit margin and how yeah. much it costs to make it. But this is my this is my thing, is that I went on to the sales section, last of the big spenders, me, but I was given a choice of three prices to pay. And I could wow. pay uh, at 50% off, 40% off, or 30% off, depending on how I felt. It was down to me. You can go and do it. And? And... <laughs> if you know me and you wouldn't ask that question you'd know that I didn't buy anything at all because I kept my, my money in my wallet I just wanted to get but... that on tape <laughs> but what then do they do with that extra bit of money that you've spent on or not spent yeah well if, you mean if I'd sort of gone for the smaller discount is that what you mean yes if you've gone for the smaller discount what's what do they do with that extra margin the way they explain it is that they, they're putting it into, you know, finding even better products because effectively they're selling the end of their line, stuff that they can't sell. So they're saying they're going to use this this money then to make, you know, I don't know, I think better decisions is the wrong expression, but, you know, just sort of incrementally improve their offer and that's what they're going to do it for. So it just it goes into the budget for... So you're investing in the environment then rather than investing in their company? Well, I'm investing in their company, I guess, but... But as a result of that, because if you're going to buy your clothes, it's a it's a company that's doing sort of uh, doing it in a better way, more sustainable way. I think that's probably 
Mm. Okay, that's interesting. It's very interesting. Mm. Well, since I've never seen your wallet, Jamie, then, uh, <laughs> I just have to imagine that. Uh, well, look, we've uh, we've managed to go through luxury and credibility and come back to a discount at the end. <laughs> but uh, I think that's just us. Uh, I think it's clear the market uh, is giving signals that uh, they expect more transparency, more responsibility, and to be part of a product's life rather than just discarded later. So some very interesting trends there that we'll be picking up on again. But Martin, thanks for introducing that report to us. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that next one up is the grocery sector. Yes, that's correct, Ian. Excellent. So uh, if you go to retailx.net, then you can see the upcoming reports. And uh, we're very interested to hear your thoughts, as well as any requests for sectors that we should be looking at. Anyway, so our time is up. Thanks, everybody. JB, Martin, Emma. And until the next episode, it's bye. Lovely. When you do the grocery one, that I mean, that is fascinating. That whole Ricardo, M and S, everyone yes. suddenly, everyone getting on the bandwagon conversation. Does it cover that? Yeah. So we've not restricted ourselves to just multi-channel companies. We are looking at the whole spectrum. So those that are only online, those that are only offline, and a little bit online. Yeah. <laughs> what those that are regionally online, but yeah. you know, all, all the different facets and and angles and and the strange relationships that Amazon or Ocado might have with different uh, behind-the-scenes back-end retailers that are, that are helping yeah. them out. And global, not just UK. We've looked at a couple uh, in some Korean uh, ones. I think we're looking at Hama, your oh. favourite uh, favorite Chinese experience <laughs> store. So we're looking at uh, you know a few others, but the focus is mainly the UK market because the uh, the drivers of the market tend to have quite a lot to do with uh, the local consumer and the local infrastructure. I was just going to say in grocery, I think they're so different in all these markets. I mean, mm-hmm. the French is even very different to the mm. to the British, to the US. I mean, all around the world, grocery seems to me as very, very different. Whereas you might say in other areas of retail, like fashion, it's broadly fashion, the same. Yeah. But um, we, uh, we were talking about... Um, going over to Amsterdam to mm. visit uh, Picnic, because they, again, have got a very interesting um, model. And uh, Iris Becker's their founder and CEO, was making some very interesting comments at our last conference around, you know, uh, grocery penetration, uh, someone correct me, is about 5% online, 2 to 5% it's online? Well, that, it's a small yeah. percent Max, online. Yeah. So you're saying, you know, if you imagined uh, a market at 25%, what has to change to make that work? And also he was talking about setting up in Amsterdam where you can't have trucks in and out all the time. So again, he's talking about a coalition where as they're delivering you with their little electric vehicle, you're shopping. They'll also pick things up for you, uh, artisanal bread, local bakers. So again, this, this, this conjunction of the city or the local environment plus the local infrastructure and bringing together... Uh, merchants, artisans, consumer packaged goods, you know, the whole gamut focus on the customer. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. I think Mother Nature is crying out for that because there's so many wasted, you know, well, wasted in inverted commas journeys delivering one package, you know, and then not doing anything else. It's absolutely insane. There should mm-hmm. be somehow 
clever people can, I'm sure, work it out. But especially in a place like Amsterdam, which is harder to yes. navigate. And also already regulated. Yeah. Mm. But home delivery is still better environmentally than somebody going to the shops and buying something and using a personal car. Is it? Mm-hmm. I'll take your word for it. Yeah, there was a study you've got to buy about 28. I can't remember the figure, but it's like 19 or 28 or something different things to make up for one home delivery. Wow. Wow, that's interesting. And of course, if you're a diesel driver, then good luck getting your car into London now at all <laughs> with um, yeah. you know, the uplifts on parking and the ultra-low emission zone. So again, lots of lots of change coming there. So that sector report, we're very much looking forward to it. Mm. And of course, let's not forget Jack, uh, the rise of the discounters. Mm. You know, it's no longer seen as shameful to sneak into Aldi at the back door. You know, these are badges we want with pride. The ranges are good. So again... You know, having just spoken about luxury, we're now seeing some attributes of luxury, product credibility, uh, convenience, service, mm. applying right to the other end of the uh, of the price spectrum. I mean, I don't, I don't want to talk about one brand too much, but Ocado, with a recent, you know, fire in one of their distribution centres, they had a couple of days where they were a bit all over the place and had to cancel a few orders, but they looked after us. They gave us a, a refund and. Uh, you know, a gesture of goodwill and all that stuff, but they were back on it within mm. two days. I mean, you know, it's not easy, all that, that game, but, you know, they, they, they just absolutely know that's the only way that their business is going to thrive is that they get it right every single yeah. time, which is exactly your point well, about we, uh, what luxury is all about. We warehouse. Emma yeah. let me out of the office once and we went to uh, see the Ocado warehouse. It's one of the best... Andover? Uh, no. No, it was the uh, other one. Hemel Hempstead. The first one, Hemel Hempstead, anyway. Mm. One of the most extraordinary days out ever. That's amazing with the, how much automation and artificial intelligence bringing the right products to different areas. And so even the company doesn't know what products are going to be put in front of which picker at which time. And, yeah, it's extraordinary. and the staff are really good too. The drivers that I speak to, you know, invariably very, very good. Great. Well, who needs a royal warrant? We have Jamie's seal of approval. And hopefully uh, the next time we're in the studio, the report will be out so we can, uh, we can cover that in more detail. Thanks, Jamie, Marty and Emma. Let's go have a coffee.